you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, it's Roger here. You know, I've always been blown away by Las Vegas. It's a show, right? A spectacle. There's no more over-the-top place on earth. You're walking down the strip and a powerful beam of light shoots off the top of a pyramid that can be seen from space. A volcano erupts with an incredible show of fire and pyrotechnics. Astounding performers from Cirque du Soleil are dazzling audiences. It's all about creating hype and excitement that draw players in the door. Well, in today's episode, I'm talking with Mr. Craig Cavalier, who's the visionary president of the Silverton Hotel and Casino, and he's making a splash off the strip. Get that, off the strip. We're going to talk all about the strategy, the idea making, the brainstorming, and the hooks that are setting his properties apart. Not only that, we're going to talk about two of the biggest retail brands on the planet that have come to the Silverton and the impact it's having on business. It's all about marketing firepower, and there's going to be so many takeaways that you can apply to your own operation. Don't miss this episode. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants and hotels build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. Today, I'm speaking with Mr. Craig Cavalier. He is the president of the Silverton Hotel and Casino in fantastic Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome to the show, Craig. How are you today? Hey, good morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, I'm glad to have you here. So you have an extensive hospitality background. Um, Obviously, you're the president of a very large hotel enterprise. You run lots of restaurants within that hotel. Let me ask you for the audience how you got into the hospitality business. Do, does that story go way back? It does. Uh, you know, 25 years or so. Uh, so as, as the managing partner for Silverton, there's a whole backstory to how did you get to that, right? How do you have a, a, a successful resort and casino in Las Vegas? And it really started as a retail shopping center developer, which there is an absolute tie-in because you know, you're know you building projects for Walmart and Target and doing different things around Southern California with really the ultimate, really the ultimate goal there is to facilitate a large project that draws thousands and thousands of people a day, five, six, 7,000 people a day so that Target and Ross and TJ Maxx and Kohl's and the restaurants and all these guys are successful. You know, I'm trying to drive $150 million to $200 million of GDP in my project. Why? So that they'll pay rent, I can pay the bank, and everybody's happy, right? So that really started, you know, in my 20s, 23, 24, 25 years old, really getting into the, those developments, and I did a lot of that. Um, but it was in about 1996 or 7 that our chairman of our company, Ed Roski, had a vision here in L.A. to build a new arena project. And the arena was going to be home to the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Kings, and which we now know as Staples Center in downtown LA. Been there so many Ed times. Me, yeah, so Ed asked me in 96 if I would, we just finished a bunch of retail projects, if I would join the development team and, and his partner, AEG, uh, as we know AEG, and Majestic, the, the real estate company that I'm also a principal in I'm on both sides, hospitality and real estate. When I go on the development team and, and we talk about hospitality, there's no bigger hospitality environment than treating you know a million people a year to LA Kings and the Los Angeles Lakers and the Clippers and what ultimately became LA Live with Rich Carlton and Marriott and all the stuff around that. 
So, you know, that really took us into what are we going to do to be different here? And we went around and traveled and looked at all the different arenas around the country. We looked at not only the service and the fan experience, food and beverage, right? Food and beverage, a big part of the fan experience, positive, negative. How are we going to be different in L.A.? We're going to have the Grammys here. We're going to do all these things. we got to be something special. And at some point, we'll have hospitality and hotel to support it, which we now do. But this is 96, 97 as we were in the development uh, process. And so I've really worked on the programming elements of food, beverage, sweet designs. And the most thing, the thing I was most passionate about is bathrooms. Why are bathrooms important? Because it's part of the hospitality experience. Why are there always lines? Why are there always lines at the beer? The only place we make money is beer and parking, right? The teams take the rest of the money. So how do we facilitate an F&B program? How do we reinvent food and beverage at a stadium so it's not hot dogs and hamburgers? But we're in L.A., everybody's going to expect more. We want to deliver more. And, gosh, where else would you do it? I mean, maybe at Philadelphia Core States or maybe you want to do it over here in Honda Center at the time, the pond, as we call it, with the Anaheim Ducks. But if you're going to do it right, you better darn well do it in downtown L.A. and you better do it for the Lakers and the Kings. And they're going to expect it with the high-profile crowd. So we really reinvented food and beverage there with the idea, with our arena club, with indoor and outdoor fireplace outside. We're the only place in the planet that has a fireplace on the outside of an arena project with patios and dining and buffet and then we did the high-end club which is you know it morphed into different things but it's still our high-end venue there so we changed food and beverage and we added more points of sale and we added a lot of restrooms so that really got me into hospitality and I, I really enjoyed doing that I left that project when we went under construction frankly my work was done I'm not a constructor I'm a, I'm a builder or a designer if you will and so that's when I got into the hospitality business, a real hospitality of a casino. And we had just taken over a small casino in Las Vegas that we had built for another company, Boomtown Casinos. And they, we were just a landlord. They were a tenant. Las Vegas had a million people in it. This is right on the edge, just south of Mandalay Bay. Mandalay Bay didn't even exist at the time. And so I said, well, let me take a crack. I'll go out there and see what's going on as we take this place over. What would we do with it? This is in 1998. And I planned on spending a year there and just sort of looking at the real estate. What if we brought some more critical mass to this casino to draw people? What can we do with food and beverage programming? It was a very small property at the time. And I got a passion for it. And I said, you know, let me stay a couple of years and see how we do. And I ended up, here we are 20 years later uh, in 2019 as a CEO and managing partner. And while I'm not there every single day, I'm there at least one day a week having a great team of a thousand people that make the thing work for us every day. We've expanded it two or three times and invested, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in doing so. And we've had a lot of fun with it. The last piece, then you can kind of pick this apart. The last piece of that, that has then taken us to new developments with new brands. So we're developing a Hyatt Place Hotel on our Silverton Casino campus here in Las Vegas. I have 150 keys. It'll open up this summer. And of course, we have a small food and beverage program with that. We're building a, a Marriott Spring Hill project with a new casino in Pahrump, just west of Las Vegas, um, Silverton Ranch Casino, with a great three-meal restaurant, plus we're building 125 keys of Marriott there. But the one I'm very, very proud of in the Fort Worth Stockyards is an adaptive reuse historic district project, most visited di historic district in the state. And we're doing a, about a $200 million project currently under construction with a highly uh, handcrafted and curated hotel with Marriott, it's an autographed collection hotel called the Hotel Drover, and our signature restaurant, three meal, 
front yard, backyard, twinkle lights, fire pits, fireplaces, washers, all that. Uh, it's called 97 West, and that's a $100 million project that's under construction at this time as well. So from real estate to sports, entertainment to gaming, and now into non-gaming hotels and in the gaming space. And that's you got 25 years there in four minutes. That's what's happened. That's amazing. Uh, so many ideas are coming to mind here, but the common thread, and you and I share a lot in common in our philosophies towards operating you know, venues or hospitality enterprises, but what comes to mind is amenities and hooks and style and making a big splash and capturing the attention and imagination of the public, you know, as your clientele. So, and, and that continues to the present day. I had a chance to check out your website and you've got lots of different restaurant venues. Some of them are very, very unique with a lot of really powerful hooks that are, you know, they make a big splash. I'm sure the camera phones come out all the time and people are posting all over social media. With that said, um, you're off the strip. You know, the Silverton Hotel and Casino is off the strip and people are familiar with the Las Vegas Strip, you know, and all those big name hotels. So how do you compete? How do you attract your clientele? Who are your clientele, you know, in comparison to someone that might go to, uh, you know, Mandalay Bay or, you know, Luxor or some of those other properties that, you know, people are very, very familiar with? That's a great question, and, and I'll be better at answering it today than I would have been 20 years ago, but I still don't know if I figured it all out, so I'll tell you what I do know or what I think. Um, you know, you've got about a, a $9 billion gaming market in Las Vegas, and that's just on the gaming side, so we take in about $9 billion on the strip there. Off-strip is about $2.5, $2.6 billion, so there are about 40 of us that compete around the strip. Station Casinos being the biggest, the biggest resorts, Red Rock and Green Valley Ranch. You've got South Point just south of us with 2,000 rooms. M Resort to the south, even further south of us on I-15, about seven miles south. You've got Void Gaming with Samstown and the Orleans. So there's a lot of us that compete in this, quote, off-strip space. And then on the strip, of course, everybody's fighting MGM and Caesars and Treasure Island and Wynn and Genting under construction, and that has a whole different ecosystem than what we exist in. But we have probably the most competitive retail, and I'll call it gaming and restaurants and food, beverage, and entertainment retail platform of anything that I could possibly imagine because we all have the same slot machines. We all have good food, if not great food. We all win awards, and I mean stations and the other casino properties that are competing for that two and a half billion or so of gaming revenue. We also have non-gaming group, food, beverage, um, entertainment, concerts, and things like that. So what are we doing? We're all fighting for a lot of locals. There are two million people that live in Las Vegas. 55% of those have a high propensity to spend their entertainment dollars in casinos. They like to gamble. They like to get free concert tickets. They love the free food. If they gamble enough, they get a bunch of free food. And, you know, the competition has forced us from 99 cent shrimp cocktail, you know, in the old days oh, yeah. to very, very elegant 75 to $85 price point steakhouses. And our Twin Creeks restaurant is a great award winner for that. But, you know, while we get a high retail uh, average check for that, a lot of people eat there for free, right? Because they're spending a lot of money in the casino and they're earning all those comps. And so we have this balance of very high competition for quality or premium players, customers, if you will. And we have a lot of competition for people who don't gamble a lot, but they gamble a long time, meaning they live there and they come 200 times a year. Mm -hmm. And every time they might only be worth 30 or 40 or 50 bucks. And all of a sudden you go, 
this customer who's got a $15,000 value per year, and I've got a couple hundred thousand of those, how do I keep them in my place versus giving a share of wallet to every other casino? Because they go to different places. So here's how we do it. We all compete for the same customers on the off strip from a local standpoint. And that's a very competitive business. It's highly promotional, extraordinarily high level of service to keep people committed because it's like their country clubs. They know the dealers, they know the, the ballet people, they know the waitresses, they know the machines they like to play. And it requires us to get really smart about what they do. So data analytics plays a big part of that. Our very robust data warehouse, so I can look at every machine you play, I know every meal you eat, I know the time of day you like to eat, and then I use data analytics to properly market to you on a direct basis. And, and basically I'm trying to get you for a penny, but it costs me a few bucks every time to get you. And I'm constantly monitoring return on investment for all of those local casino players. And we have hundreds of thousands of them. To give you an idea, on any given day in our building, we have players club cards to measure loyalty, right? And that gives you an incentive to use it. And we have between 3,500 and 5,000 individual card holders or uniques as we call them, playing in a casino every day. And that can translate to food and beverage, which is what this call is mostly about, um, to anywhere between 3,000 and 5,500 covers per day in the building. So we're selling, you know, we're feeding 5,000 people a day in the building. And those are actually sit down. We really don't have fast food. So this is all committed, sit down and enjoy the moment, 30 minutes to an hour. That's segment one. How do you compete? Food, beverage, service, pricing. And then we have to keep pricing right because some people don't earn comps. They have to buy the food. And how do we market to them? So we have to be really extraordinarily careful on return on investment to get those people on a repeat basis. Second part of that, which for us is about 30% of our business, are tourists. So how do you get tourists? You're south of Mandalay Bay. Why would anybody not go to Caesars or Wynn or Encore or any of these other great properties in Venetian? And why would they ever go off strip to go gamble? Well, one, we have a very good location on I-15, so when you come into, Cal into Vegas, we're right there, we're very present. But we created a hook, you mentioned hooks, we created a magnificent hook in 2004, and that's when we talked to Johnny Morris, who owned and created Bass Pro Shops, to come to Las Vegas with a flagship store. It's now Bass Pro and Cabela's are the same store, 170,000 square foot flagship retail store that drives almost two million people a year to its store. And those tourists leave the Strip, visit Bass Pro, we connected it together, physically connected us, and then wrapped that into Silverton Casino Lodge Hotel so that it feels like a destination place. And that's when you look online, it's sort of contemporary, cool lodge and all these different elements while Bass Pro is very, very on a yeah. and made the place feel different. So we made ourselves look different. We have a sustainable competitive advantage because I have Bass Pro that drives millions of people that I don't have to pay for. I bought it one time in 2004, and we get the repeat benefit of that of all these people coming in and exploring. So that was a big hook. And then we put another hook in there. How do you compete for tourists? We put 117,000-gallon saltwater aquarium at the main entry so that people would have something to take pictures of. Now, this is before social media, right, in 04. We didn't have social, but we at least had photographs. And now it's one of, it's one of those photograph things, and we win all the awards for the best free attraction in Las Vegas is our aquarium out there, and it's TripAdvisor, and it's all the different awards for that. It's not just fish, and sharks, and stingrays, but I added another hook, and I said, rather than just have all that, why don't we have mermaids in here swimming? 
So we have mermaid shows. We have mermaids swimming with fish. You can get married with the mermaids, literally get in the tank, and we'll you can swim with mermaids awesome. and do different things. And, and it, it's sort of kitschy and cool at the same time. It's elegant. It's pretty. It's well-lit. It's very theatrical. And so we built a series of hooks. Those are two of the big ones. And uh, that became our competitive advantage. Nobody else has that. And so if you're going to go off strip, that gives you a reason to come. And we get our fair share. We do pretty well, and we're really happy with it. But oh, one more thing. So we have our 300 hotel keys, so hospitality or hotel rooms. And then we partnered with a timeshare company out of Florida, and there's 400 units of timeshare that it really is an all-suite hotel on the campus. And then we're adding 150 of Hyatt's. So four plus three is seven, plus we'll have 850 keys there for the tourists. And then we have all the local hooks and combined, we just sort of have this ecosystem that goes 365 and been doing it for 20 years there. That's so huge. And I have to have the audience really think that through, whether you're a small independent operator, whether you're a large hotel, multi-unit chain, it doesn't matter. It all comes down to what I call marketing firepower. And you just gave us a huge example of that. Thanks for sharing. That was a great story. Let me get back to the Players Club cards that you were talking about, because we're talking about affinity, uh, loyalty to the customer, getting them, you know, frequent your property versus shop around and you know share of wallet you called it it's been a long time since i've been in a casino anywhere but does the technology exist where you can have stored value cards that you know get loaded with a thousand bucks two thousand bucks five hundred bucks whatever it is and you literally plug it into a slot machine and you can only use it in your property can you do anything like that Sure does. Um, and when I first arrived on the scene, we, we would do what we call free play, right? We'd send you a piece of mail and say, come in on Tuesday between 12 and 4, and we'll give you $20 in free play. What that really meant is you came in, and I had to have an attendant hand you a $20 bill, and we would hand it to you at the machine. We wouldn't give it to you at the loyalty club because you'd put it in your pocket and walk out. So we'd hand it to you at the machine and kind of like encourage you to play it mm -hmm. because we want you to put it back in the machine and get you involved. Um, a lot of things have changed since then now, right? We don't even have coins and, and machines anymore, and we don't hand out dollar bills at the machine because that loyalty card allowed us to connect directly with you. So when I offer you free play or I give you bonus points or I give you incentives to come in and get this if you do that, play this long and get that, it's all tied to your card. And so at the machine, you can actually redeem your free play there. So we don't have any inter – now, the bad news is I don't get a personal interaction. Right in those days, you got to talk, put the money in. Hey, I hope you win. Everybody's happy. Now it sort of depersonalizes that transaction, but it also makes it super efficient. Right, you don't have to wait in a line to do anything. Yes, You're not waiting, yes. you're right. not waiting on that. Awesome. So we're very efficient in transacting that offer to you. We're very efficient in giving you the free play, and we can also give you your food, beverage, concert, all that other stuff can occur basically at the machine except if we need to give you a piece of paper to work with, like a ticket to go somewhere. We've also depersonalized that for efficiency because just the amount of people in a building like this, and we have a kiosk where you basically touch your, your pad and out pops your ticket and you're off to the concert or you're off to do whatever you want to do. So the good news is we, the industry you know, has made it efficient for us to deliver those things to people, good service. The bad news is over time we've depersonalized the gaming hospitality experience because there's no longer coin people walking around giving you ch change for coin. Um, you only have one uh, floor person working in the casino for about every hundred machines. And so there could be a hundred customers with one person. You're lucky to even interact with that person. And 
in large part, you don't even need to, frankly, because if you win, you get a piece of paper, you go and stick that in the kiosk, get your $1,000 you just won and walk out of the building and you never have to talk to anybody. So efficiency good, level of connection with your customer low, but your ability to reward them is very high with instant gratification. You're obviously turning your tables over multiple times uh, in multiple day parts throughout the day. Are you, you mentioned da data analytics. Are you tracking, you know, the tourists versus the locals versus the high rollers versus all that sort of stuff through this? Is it possible to, you know, even break it down to how many customers a day you serve food and beverage to that came, you know, through the Bass Pro Shop? I mean, how technical can you get? Well, it's gotten pretty crazy. First, you're, when you made a comment about a single property operator, if you think about the gaming market in the two and a half billion range, and let's say that we you know we only get we only operate with about five percent of that, so ninety-five percent of all that business is happening some other place, and we get our fair share. We actually have a premium to our fair share, and we look at fair share as total slot machines in the off-strip market equals X. We own Y. What percentage of the market do we have? and then take the total gaming revenue and we are either getting dollar for dollar our fair share or we have a premium, meaning we're getting more than we deserve or we're getting less than we deserve. We're getting less, we start firing people, right? If we're getting more, everybody's rewarded. So we have operated as a premium to our fair share of gaming market win for year after year after year. We do really well. Answer to your question on tracking. It has been an evolutionary process, but I can tell you today we've invested several million dollars over the years in all of our data analytics and our hardware and our software. We have five full-time analysts that manage that data. Frankly, there's more data than you can ever process. Oh, yeah. It's overwhelming. It's what it is. Yeah. yeah, you have to deselect data. But if you had a card and you came in for the next couple of weeks or you came in yesterday, I would be able to tell when you arrived on property, especially if you're a VIP because you go through and you get preferred parking through a gated area. I know when you're on property, I don't know, it doesn't have an RFID chip that says you've arrived inside of the gate yet, but in the, the, the you know, the, the four walls of the 100 acres that we own there, but the minute you engage that card in anything, I've now got, I'm tracking you from point to point. What does it track? It'll track if you eat for sure. It'll track if you make a transaction at a, at a kiosk machine to get bills or cash out or redeem. It'll track that. It'll tell me if you went to the players club to interact and do something, the hotel, if it interacted. Um, but what it really does is track all of your activity on the machines. And then what does it do? It tracks every single keystroke, if you will, on a slot machine. So every you put a dollar in or $100 in or 10000 in, it'll track every bet you made. It'll Because you might be on a coin machine that you can bet a penny or $100. So I know when you bet a penny, I know which game you selected, and I know what the outcome is. And I know every single game. So then I know what your time on device is and your average bet and what you prefer to play because the average player plays about 15 games a day. And so we watch you play your 15 games. We know what your average bet is. We know what you prefer to do. We know what your affinity games are. We track you as you move around the casino. And ultimately we're one of the few casino operators that does this. We redesign the casino constantly to group product or merchandise around you. And we find everyone that looks like you. If I can find 10,000 people that look like you, I'll build a mini casino in the casino and you'll turn around and go, gosh, they moved my favorite machine right here. I used to have to walk over there. And so we start grouping merchandise together, slot machines, so that we can reduce your time moving where we're not making money. We don't make any money unless you're engaging. So we put the product closer to you. You appreciate it. You don't know how it happened, 
but we're constantly looking at that. And so we're remanaging the casino merchandising of the floor, and we have about 1,800 you know, slots. So there's a lot to move around all the time um, on a constant basis. So that's how much we know and how much we pay attention to it. Oh, yeah. one more thing. Yeah, go ahead, please. All right. And within that group, there's 15 different tiers of people. And the tier is typically how much time you spend on device and what your ultimate value to us is. And then we have to break those 15 into pieces. And you're either local, you're a local drive. Phoenix is a local drive. Southern California is local drive. Northern California, you're a fly market. So we have local, local drive, and fly, three different buckets. And each of those buckets has multiple tiers up to 15. So you could be managing 45 different customer segments, and we only operate in 30-day cycles. Every 30 days, there's a new promotion, there's a new offering, it's got a brand, it's got a logo, it's got a position statement. It's just repackaging the same net effect of what you're doing, getting people to come and engage your customer, but you have to call it something different, make it look fresh. And you know we've done it 20 times on 12 weeks, so you know we're, we're, we've been doing this a long time. And it's, it's been a big learning experience. What type of excitement, Craig, can you create or are you creating within the, the casino environment when people are winning, just to give the impression that people are constantly winning, like as if your casino is luckier than the casino down the street, that sort of thing, right? Just to keep people saying, yeah, that's the place. It's like everyone's hitting all the time. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before I hit the big jackpot. You know where I'm going with that? Yeah, you know, it's there's been a, um, I mean, if you do this long enough, I guess, in any industry, you'll say, well, it's changed over time. You know, now I'm the old guy saying, yeah, things change, right? The way we communicate winners, the way we communicate um, big jackpot winners, 10000 and above, $100,000 jackpots and so forth. We certainly communicate that through now social media. You know, Craig wins $25,000. We show a picture holding the big check. We put it on our one of our 72 video screens around the property. Sometimes we do billboards and actually do a billboard campaign if we have significant winners that are willing to put their face on a billboard. Yeah, uh, we well, that's one cool. Guy really, we had this one guy that wins $100,000 sitting in front of the cage one day on a slot machine. And it's a pretty big slot winner when he went 100 k No doubt. And he wins 100 and while we're sitting there paying him out, he spins around with his handful of bills, and he's talking to the change girl, and they're getting all the transaction done. He wins another 100 Royal, Royal Flush wins another 100 while he's waiting to get paid. You want two, one, which is impossible. It just never happens. Yeah, what are the it's odds of that happening? You just said it's, yeah, I mean, think about that. It's winning the lottery, basically. It's just impossible. Sure, you know, We sure. don't know when people are going to win. Everything right. is randomized. Yes, no yes. idea when the team's going to hit. And um, happy to pay him. But he agreed to let us put his face on a billboard. So we did about a six-month so billboard cool. campaign <laughs> That's awesome. where he's holding two big bags of money. It was a lot of fun. So That's there's great. direct like that. There's a social media piece to promote. But, but to be sure, locals don't believe any of that. That's they, they know they're too smart. There's no reason to tell them you win more jackpots or you pay out more royal flushes or you've got the loosest slots. That's all just a joke. There's no reason to tell people that. Tourists, you can still talk about, hey, we pay out a lot of jackpots because they come once or twice a year and they buy into the whole lore of, you know, this is the most winning casino in town. Um, so then you're sort of dancing a balance. You don't want to like over promote that you got the loosest slots. You don't want to talk about 99.9% payback machines. And you don't want to say I pay out more of this. But you do want the illusion that this is a fun place. And that's really where you're going. How sure, do we make that's right. place feel? Yeah. How do we create energy? How do we make it fun? And you do it with live music and you do it with 
a lot of personal interaction with the customers so they can talk about jackpots that hit last. You can say so-and-so won a machine, that machine hadn't hit. And you just create stories that just kind of continue to flow around in the building. But I think that the industry is kind of beyond saying, we've got the loosest slots in town because it's really just not true. Nobody's got the loosest slots in town. We all play at about the same old percentages and that's just the way it is. Yeah, and I would think that you know, uh, winning is a function of traffic volume through a property. So, you know, if you've got a 100,000-square-foot casino versus someone that's got a 25,000-square-foot casino, you're going to have more traffic going through the bigger property, then there's going to be more random winners. Is that true? Well, yeah, I mean, it's all it's math, right? So it's pure it's math. All math. It's, right, it's right. what's the volume. And, you know, I've got more slot. MGM has 5,000 slot machines or 5,000 rooms, right? It's the largest hotel in the world right there at a drop in the strip. I've got more slot machines than MGM has, and I've got 300 rooms. I mean, Wynn has 800 and something games, I've got 1,800 games. So we actually have more slots than what the traditional property on, a, on the, than they have. Now they've all gone from big, big rooms, right? Smaller slot floors, maybe a little more table games, right. but they've increased restaurants and nightclubs, all the non-gaming revenues. So gaming revenues used to be here, and say it was 75% of the total revenue on the strip. And then we were all like, oh my God, one day it went to 50-50. Gaming was 50 and non-gaming was 50. Now non-gaming revenue is more than gaming revenue. So gaming revenue is only growing at maybe 1%, 1 or 2% a year as it's recovered from the downtime. And so it's fairly static in, in Las Vegas. Non-gaming revenue is doing that, right? It's hotel, food, beverage, entertainment has really skyrocketed. Point being, you're right, volume matters. Off strip, you get more volume. And there is a differential in our, call it our profit margin on a slot or video poker machine. We do have a lower profit margin, we call it hold percentage, but a lower profit margin than the strip. So if we hold 6.5% of the total volume game gambled, the strip is gonna be higher than that, eight, 9%. So their games are tighter meaning you, the longer you play there, you'll lose more than if you go out and, and you have coin in or total wagers of $100,000 on the strip, you're going to lose more money. You're going to lose eight or 9000 and at our place, you lose about six and a half to 7000 So our, our product is priced lower than the strip, but all of us off strip are priced about the same, if that helps understand. It does. Another huge nugget I want the audience to take away from what you just said. You mentioned that non-gaming revenue is really growing dramatically and, you know, gaming revenue is flat or growing slightly. It's just another, you know, I'm a huge advocate of having multiple profit centers in any hospitality enterprise, whether you're selling retail merchandise, packaged foods to go, you know, t-shirts, hats, having live entertainment with cover charges, all that kind of stuff, catering. It's like you just can't have too many profit centers that all have unique hooks that are all things that people talk about. And, you know, you got a large enterprise here, but I think the concept trickles down to, you know, those small independent operators or, you know, any hospitality enterprise. You know, profit centers are really what's driving your revenue, driving your growth, and your cash flow. Yes. Um, sorry, somebody was looking in the window over here. <laughs> the, cool. uh, so on, I'll just kind of do a differentiation. On the Strip, you, um, you have a lot of profit centers, right? Most all restaurants on Strip are profitable, you know, but for maybe some of the food court. But generally speaking, those are designed as profit centers. 
and there's no listen i've got a, i've got an award-winning sushi restaurant we just opened uh, we just got the best hidden gem in las vegas of all sushi restaurants we've only been open 60 days and you know you and i can go in there and we're paying 650 to 950 a piece take the same product and go to bellagio and take the sushi bar there and we're going to pay 18 bucks right so their cost of goods sold there is, you know, 20%. Mine maybe is 35 to 40 or as much as 50 or 60%. Sure. They can get, they can get a higher check than I can get. Bottom line is I'm sure I got to keep the locals happy and I can raise it just a little bit because I've got tourists there as well. So we are charged off strip, meaning us and stations and Boyd and, and uh, Michael gone and others. And because we have such a large locals contingent, we are forced to reduce our pricing down and so we have to manage margin very carefully. Those profits, when I tell you, when I first got in this, we were losing three to four dollars average per cover. I'm losing three to four dollars to feed 800,000 to a million people a year. And you go, well, wow, how is this happening? How am I losing three or four million in food and beverage? Cost of goods is 72, 73, 74% because of pricing um, and, and a little bit of that on managing product. What we've been able to do as an industry off strip over the years is now our food and beverage is a profit center. It would be more profitable if we didn't care about the gamers. Like our food, we could raise the price on this still sell, but because it's really all about slot machines and all about gaming, we reduce our, our retail pricing so that we can cater to our real customer, which is gaming and hospitality. They didn't come there to eat. They came there to be part of the whole thing. They want to eat, they want to gamble, they want to go to a concert, some of the off-strip guys have bowling and movie theaters. They're coming for entertainment. Dining is a part of it. And so we don't look at that. At, I wish I could make $10 million a year selling that, but we, we don't have that kind of net revenue on our food and beverage operations because of pricing. We have restraint on our sort of a cap on how far we can push prices. Well, that begs the question, have you... I guess if I were you, I'd have a whole team of um, chefs coming up with cash cows that cost very little to put on the plate, but have high perceived value and print money and sell those by the thousands a day. You know, that's what I did in my places. Yeah, you know, it, it is that you're always looking at protein, right? Especially in the buffet. Remember, we have a buffet with a fixed price and you can go and eat as much as you want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll have people in there, by the way, on crab nut, crab legs and, and certain nights, especially if you do barbecue. Yeah, there are customers will go to the edge of their table, go get a big plate, open their big old purse, foil-lined purses, and dump food, yeah. and then walk out with crab legs. So oh, you yeah. basically have you have an unlimited source of food for a fixed price in your buffet, and that is obviously a trick in a lot of buffets. You can walk the entire buffet line and can't, can't find protein anywhere. We don't really do that, to be honest with you. Maybe in the old days, I would say, why is everything so meaty, you know, what can we do to produce this, get three ounces instead of four ounces? We certainly do it on a plate cost basis, but it is not a core principle or objective of ours to, to manage food costs doing that. Um, I really start the other way, the way you open this, this conversation, and that is I want people to be delighted. I want them to be surprised. I want them to tell people how great this place is. I want to win a lot of awards, the Reader's Choice Awards, and we do. Um, I want to give a great price for value received because that's how you continue your model to keep churning and building. Um, I want to be better than everybody else at that. Then, so where do we, what do we obsess on? Quality of food, taste, service, 
And, and then what I also obsess on is labor model because the labor can kill you in a 24-hour restaurant. Yes. It can kill you in a one meal or a two meal or a three meal. And it's real easy to get complacent with 5,000 people a day eating there or six. And you see, you know, three people at the hostess stand and you kind of walk the property and go, good, I'm ready. I'm ready for everything. And then you look at the 24-hour day park model and you go, why are we always ready for everything? Why can't we have one person there? You know, sometimes maybe I don't even need a hostess. Let's have one of the runners come up. And so our labor model, you know, we have a $35, $40 million a year labor. If I'm 1% off, it's three or 400,000. Yes. Right. So every day I walk in, line. I always say, hey, I go in weekly and I go, has anybody found 1% today? And everybody sort of laughs. I go, 1%, guys, three to $400,000 off the payroll. Is everyone absolutely sure we're going to go out of business if we cut labor by 1%? And no one can say we're going out of business, right? You go, then why aren't we doing 1%? And that's the, that's the tension between absolute profit margin or EBITDA margin, as we call it, mm -hmm. and beverage margin, and great service and award-winning. And if you're not fanatical about that every day, you should walk out because you're not going to, you're not going to make it. Do revenues swing wildly from week to week, from day to day, or is it pretty constant? I mean, you've got a lot of history on daily sales throughout the property and all the profit centers, and that's one way of managing labor. I call it the sweet spot, finding that spot where you've got just enough people to give great service, and then you know you, you magically know exactly when the crowd diminishes and when it picks up again. And you know, we used to have people that just did that in our operation, just to stay within that sweet spot. Yeah, you know, it's um, we do have people in analyze on a revenue per cover basis and a, and a transaction. I mean, we we actually have sort of a customized software, our heat maps that we use for casino managing casino flow in 24 hours, where the red, green, yellow, where the customers are playing and how they move around. Mm -hmm. We do the same with restaurants, and we take our customer transactions <clears throat> rather than just looking at spreadsheets and doing a typical labor model and cost of goods and doing a revenue per, per uh, a labor cost per cover. That's all important. If you're just, if you're managing 10,000 restaurants around the country or, or 27,000 Starbucks and you're looking at labor modeling, that's one way, but we have the benefit of actually physically being there, right? Our analytics team is right there with the property. And so we look at day part by day, by minute, by hour, but, and we have 24 hours of labor so we can move ships around really easy. It's not like a restaurant with 20 employees. And I just don't have anyone to work three or four hour shifts. We have a huge you know, part-time or extra board as we call it. And people are happy to work four hour shifts, right? It's hard to do in other environments, but in gaming and in Vegas they're available. So we have all these split shifts. And we have shifts that cross over between day and grave or swing and, and day. So we can it, don't, it doesn't have to operate in three shifts, right? We get to layer it all up. And that's where that labor margin comes at the bottom and say, if I'm at 30%, I'm feeling pretty good. If I'm at 28, I'm like, gosh, somebody's doing a really good job. And if we're at 35, I go, what's happening? So that our consistency and our marketing and our promotion and all of this history really, really helps. What we don't have to worry about is 5,000 or 3,000 hotel rooms because the strip lives or dies on occupancy of the hotel. And they aren't that great at predicting that. You know, you can be 80%, but if 20% on 5,000 rooms is not occupied, that's 2,000 people sitting upstairs that want to drop down and eat at your three meal or your premium or your Mexican food or your Italian. Those can be a little bit um, more un unpredictable or less predictable. And we've got a pretty streamlined, as most off does. We kind of 
when we turn the dial on marketing, we know that the dial is going to go up on cover counts, and we can direct them to different restaurants based on the marketing offering. Let me ask you something. Unemployment is at an all-time low in this country. Everyone's talking about the labor shortage, specifically in restaurants. It's hard to find a good staff, keep a good staff, train a good staff. They say the average tenure in this business in restaurants is like three to four months, you know, and it costs you thousands of dollars to, you know, train somebody, replace that person after you lose them, all that sort of thing. Do you have issues with that? I mean, you must have so many employees in your operation. We have a thousand uh, total. That's over three shifts, 24-7. Um, a large part of that, more than 50% of that is in food and beverage. I think 560 or so in, FT, in, in the food and beverage department, maybe 400-something FTEs. Um, and we're actually more stable than – I can't even believe how stable we are. I would, I would think that we would have you know, 100 open positions today, and we don't. Um, it's unique when you're off strip. A lot of what you get off strip are people who have worked on the strip – and just, it just blew them out, right? They, it burned them out. It's a, you don't get any flexibility. You're just a cog in the wheel. There's 4,000 employees. You show up like a drone. You go to work. Your management's always changing. You just never know what's going on. You get big tips. You get, you get more tip revenue than you would off strip on average per cover because the prices are higher. But you feel really unimportant. You park in a big garage, you walk a mile or get on a shuttle to go to work. You're in a TDR with 500 people you don't know, a two-member dining room. You come to Silverton, you know your manager. Craig comes into your restaurant. The property president comes into your restaurant. They talk to you like real people. I show up at town halls and I know people several times a year and there's other meetings and it's just real. And you get relationships and you get bonds. And so of our 1,000, I think we have 200 employees that have been there over 10 years and another 175 that have been there five years. So our turnover can be very high in the back of house for a restaurant, especially in some of the really difficult positions, kitchen cleaners on graveyard. You know, it's hard. There are certain positions that do tend to churn, but in our upfront, our front of house stuff, we, we do very, very well with that. We're lucky, I guess. We're lucky. Okay. Again, our philosophies are so similar. You know, we called what I we created what I call the culture of hospitality, family, and fun, where it was all about hospitality, and both the staff and customers were having fun and felt like family. You know, it was amazing, and we had very low turnover and a high turnover business. I think it had a ninety-six percent retention rate year on year, and teach that stuff. I want to really get into your philosophies on training, on service. Why don't we start with, um, let's start with service because it's a big, to me, it's always been a competitive advantage. You know, the ambiance of a place is a given. The food and the drink, everyone expects it to be good. But to me, service always stands apart as being a true competitive advantage. You know, what is the service philosophy like at Silverton? How do you how do you train your people to give everybody an amazing experience and treat them like they're a, a high roller, even though they just rolled off the bus from Peoria? You know, it's like tell us about that. You know, it's 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 probably my greatest failure is having per perfected a training program over 20 years that um, that is sustainable that always has, you know, best in, it's always the idea has always been there. Believe me, we talk about service, we can preach it, we discuss it, we train it. But, you know, you can't make people be friendly, you can't make people smile. You know, I used to tell people in our town halls, I said, everybody's got challenges at home. Everybody's got, you know, raising kids or this or that. You've just got stuff that happens outside of, of Silverton. And you're only giving them a sport. 
they're giving us 40 hours and how can you walk in here with the big Disney, you know, Mickey Mouse smile on your face every day? Yeah. I can't make you do it. I can plead for you to do it. The customers, I guarantee you, will reward you for it, but I can't make you do it. And I said, if you don't want to, if it's just not in you, please go resign today because you're going to drive yourself crazy because we're going to be preaching and begging you to do it. Someone's going to see you not doing it and call you aside. This is not the place to be if you're not going to try really hard to act happy. Fake it. I said, believe it. I come to work and fake it a lot. I don't want to be here some days, but I got to come and look enthused. I got to be enthusiastic. I got to act engaged. And I said, and once I start doing that, people around me start becoming more engaged and more, more excited. So mm -hmm. if, if you don't know how to do that, look for someone in your little pod or your group that's doing it and, and act like them. Like that's part of the training. Just act like somebody who you see that people look around and they find energy and look for who the guests are talking to. Go, why is that guy always getting more tip revenue on the slot floor? Why is he always, why is that dealer? Why is everybody playing at table six as opposed to my table? I got an empty blackjack table. This guy's getting fuller. Every time I show up, everyone walks off, you know, and why don't you look and emulate people who are successful at doing what they're doing. The good news about our business and the service side is it's visible. You know, I can look down the row at cubes. I don't know what everybody's doing or if they're really good. But if people are playing at that guy's table and they're high-fiving and cheering, and every time he's there, people are going and playing with him, I want to act like that guy. That's a successful business operator. Go act like him. And then go home and go, I tried to be myself and it didn't work, but I acted like Craig. And it, man, all of a sudden, everybody was at my table enjoying themselves. People came here to have fun. And if you're not having fun, they're not having fun. I guarantee you, you will end up finding no place to work because you're not getting your tip revenue. And so much of our um, industry exists in Las Vegas on front of house exposure. Front of house means tips. And there's a lot of money and tips flowing around. you got to get your fair share. So do we have a training program? Yes, we do. Do we have standard operating procedures? Absolutely. They're all documented. Do we have standard service? Yes, it's documented and trained. Do we test it in writing? Yes, we do. If you fail it, give you a chance to make it back up and if you fail it again then you start finding yourself without employment because i can't have you persistently failing basic service standards and how to set tables and how to greet guests and how to interact with them so there is a we're sort of fanatical about that um not as good as maybe disney university and four seasons and maybe ritz but remember they're on like a four five or six to one employee to guest ratio like they overwhelm you with service, but you're also paying 750 bucks a night. In Las Vegas, even MGM's only getting $79 a night sometimes, and you're overwhelmed with customers. So you cannot be or expect to be as good as Ritz or St. Regis or Montage. You just have to try really hard all the time with the few people that you have. You strike me, Craig, as a really approachable, lead-by-example kind of guy. So I'm going to ask you what your management style is and your philosophy and how you actually conduct your business from day to day. But would you say that you're constantly on the floor noticing? Do you recognize people for, you know, going above and beyond, all that sort of thing? I mean, you got your hands on a lot of operation pie there, but tell me about that. You know, I wish I was better at when I go to – I was just at Silverton on, on uh, Monday for half day – I was in Reno in the morning <laughs> doing something in Reno. I was in Vegas for half a day. Then I went down to Port Worth for three days. I have another you know, whole group of 50 people down there with our new Hyatt, well, I guess 70 now with the Hyatt, and getting ready to hire another 150 for our Marriott property down there. Um, I'm not great at going and patting everybody on the back all the time and being a cheerleader. 
um, because I'm too obsessed with what's wrong. What do I see that isn't right? I'm very big into the symmetry of both the balance of the place, the physical space, how it feels from ballet, how the place looks, getting in, is the music right, is the lighting right, are the mermaids interacting right if they're there when I walk in, is the icy girl over there smiling that's selling ices in front of Bass Pro, we have a little slushy stand, down to Mermaid Lounge, and you know, it, is everything, is the physical space correct? And then are the people that are in the physical space that are representing us, are the dealers. When I walk, the first people I see is I walk in, there's a the table games, and if I see them just sitting there with it, you know, I don't go up to them personally and go, I need you to smile, man, you're supposed to be having fun. But that's why we have this little device here, because I often, it's no secret, people at Silverton know, I will sit down, sometimes dressed like this, especially if I sneak in on a weekend, and I will videotape our employees doing things, good and bad. Whatever I see them doing extraordinary, I'll make sure I capture so that the appropriate person rewards them, whether it's just a pat on the back or a, a note to them, or sometimes I'll send a note. And I'm, I'm too obsessed with the problems. Like I don't recognize as well when we're doing great as I do where are we failing. So it's just absolute obsession with fear of failure and common sense approach to management. Like it's just not that hard to come in and do certain things. And I want it to be perfect, perfect, perfect. And I wish I was better at being more positive. I'm too obsessed with problems. I so understand that. You know, I've always considered restaurants and hospitality to be the business of a thousand details. Even though you get 990 of those details correct, it's the 10 you miss that the customer always sees. And with that in mind, you know, I was big on training the staff to think and act like owners, to treat everything as if they had to pay for it, and they were incentivized, recognized, and rewarded to do just that. We created battle stations across our restaurants where everyone was responsible to, for lack of a better word, to stay on top of or police that certain area. And then we had the overlap of, you know, I didn't have a thousand employees. My flagship restaurant had 55 employees, but we had 55 sets of eyes. People walked through the front door and put their guest hat on and they noticed things and they were empowered to fix what was broken before the customer saw it. And there was incentives in place for doing just that. And it's amazing how your online reviews just sort of go along with that because very few of those, you know, thousands of details got missed just based on that that philosophy so you know I, I throw that out there because I'm so passionate about work what we're talking about right now and I know that you've got so much more ground to cover than I ever did but it's, it's you know we won an award that I'm really proud of several years ago after one of our expansions maybe it was our last one and we did a phenomenal job as evidenced by the award I guess uh, validation by that for a, a marketing campaign that, that was all about the DNA of what we're trying to accomplish with this Silverton Lodge product because there's not anything else that looks like it. Vegas, you've seen me online. We're very handcrafted restaurant looks and you don't, they're not beautifully packaged like Wynn and Encore and all these things where they just spend so much and they're phenomenal, but their architects designed them. Ours are more crafted and different and unique and a lot of this and a lot of that. We have an Airstream trailer with a bowling alley in it that you don't, you've never seen them. It's the only one on the planet. Like, I bought an Airstream, moved the lady out of it, took it apart, put a bowling alley, two lanes, and built it back around it. You know, we have these all these little crafted moments in there and that are now very Instagrammable. Um, so, in, in sort of the details of that and how the whole place feels, we said, what is it that our customers are embracing here? What do they like about Silverton that's allowed us to expand multiple times? 
and we did surveys, sat, sat behind the class and watched them talk about what do they feel. And what they kept saying is the place feels very comfortable. I feel like I'm, I'm sort of at home, like it's a country club environment. And it's, it just feels good. There's a glow in there. And there was a bunch of that that was intentional. There's a reason why every light fixture in there is amber and orange so that it feels like a fireplace. Who doesn't want to sit in front of a fireplace? The person across from you looks better than having fluorescent light or LED. And I said, I want everybody to feel like they're sort of pretty. I want to feel good when I go in there and I don't want to look like I'm sitting in front of them. So we made it feel glowy and warm. We tried to bring the attention. We tried to be different. So we adopted with our, our campaign team at the time. We said Silver to Casino. We have some little tagline where there was Starbucks 24-7. We have free Starbucks coffee if you're playing slots 24-7. The only place on the planet giving away free Starbucks 24-7. And it was a cup of coffee. It certainly wasn't specialty drinks. But we had this tagline that we said, that's living lodge. So Starbucks 24-7, only at Silverton, that's living lodge. That's living lodge won a global gaming award for the best marketing campaign on the planet for that year. And we won the best repositioned marketing campaign and property for that year. And we used that for a while. And I keep telling my team, we're coming back with that slip and lodge because you know what? Our people still, our customers still love that. They still feel good. It really is our core DNA that it's your living lodge, meaning it's not living lodge literally. You're living the feeling that you have in this yeah, place. Yeah, lifestyle. Warm, the lifestyle. The, mm -hmm. the employees are nice. And for whatever reason, guys, they keep coming. So let's embrace that. Let's let's go back to that's live and lodge. So that sounds like a tagline that's part of you know the core of who you are and what you do. I think it's Nike. Just do it. I mean, we didn't steal it like that. Yeah. But yeah. Listen, remember Nike took the name off Nike and put a little swoosh and said, "Just do it." That means everything to somebody. It means something different, but it says something about your spirit, mm -hmm. and it says something yes, about who you are, whatever it is. And I don't have to tell you what the name is anymore. Just do it. And it's worked pretty well for Bill Knight. For sure. So you obviously, um, I get the sense that style and design are a huge part of your strategy. You must work with an outside agency on, you know, designing the interiors of these venues and all that. You mentioned Starbucks. We're going to get to that in a minute. But all these yeah. individual, you know, uh, the Mermaid Lounge and the Shady Grove Lounge and all these cool venues. You talked about the bowling alley and the Airstream. Are any of these, like, do you play a part in this, some of these concepts and ideas and hooks and all that sort of thing? Do these ideas come from outside agencies? Do they come from a variety of places like where does the creativity really start and end in your operation you know um honestly and, and, and i hate trying to be humble on this but yes a lot of them do come from just me imagining like what would i want to do with this yep. and i could go through each one of them i could tell you that the mermaids were inspired because i had two girls that were four and five six years old and i'm reading disney books to them every night yep. Yep. they always like to get in the bathtub and act like mermaids you know and so we're building this aquarium that Johnny Morris fast forward said, I think you ought to do something cool with the saltwater aquarium. And I said, well, let's not just build them another aquarium. I get kind of bored looking at fish. And I'm reading these books, and I go, you know what? I'm going to put mermaids in my aquarium. And it was so weird. That I'll just use this as a case study. I'm watching CNN. This is 2003. And while I'm thinking, I wonder if mermaids, what, how would that even work? A story comes on on CNN about Wachi Springs, Florida. I remember this. Okay. Yeah. And they're about to go out of business because after night since World War II, when the guy started these mermaid shows underwater yep. in this yep. natural spring, and I 
So I said, I'm doing mermaids. That's what I want to do. I've never been there. i got to get there. Mm-hmm. I hired a choreographer from Cirque du Soleil. I ended up saying, we're going to choreograph a mermaid show, but I want it to be very mystical and theatrical. And we went to Wikiwachi, met him, talked to him, came back. I ended up with a gold medalist from the a synchronized swimmer, gold medalist, U.S. Olympic swimmer, a silver medalist. I ended up with a Radio City Rockette girl, Tarzan from from uh, SeaWorld. Awesome. And I had five or six, and we created this, this really f- fabulous mermaid show that we ran for years. We stopped it during the recession. It's very, it's a million bucks a year to operate that mermaid show. And the tank became a theater. It was phenomenal. Yes. And after we shut the million dollars down, now we have about a $300,000 year investment, but we keep mermaids swimming 24-7, and people are just click, 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 click. And that came to me because of the, my daughters, the, the there's a story behind the airstream. There's a story behind the waterfalls. And I love it all. There's a story behind everything. But a lot of it just comes from a guy who has, because I have a fabulous partner in Ed Roski as her chairman, if I make up an idea, he just says, go for it. If you want to try it, you know. And that aquarium turned into a $7.8 million aquarium. And I'm glad we spent it. There's no direct ROI, right? It's indirect. I, they don't charge for that. It's sure. all free. Of course. But, but it's a draw. If you can dream it, you can do it. I have great craftsmen that I can turn to and go, how would we do that? How would we buy an Airstream and put a bowling alley in it? Hey, we'll go buy it off of eBay for five grand and $400,000 later, I've got an Airstream with a bowling alley in it. And we just, and I love doing that stuff. It's fun. Yeah, this is the business of passion and the passion yeah. is totally coming through right now and it just, you know, if you're really into this business, it's so easy to get your team together and just throw stuff at the wall and brainstorm and say, what can we do to make a big splash? You know, what can we do to create more hooks? It's all about being a visionary and you're certainly um, speaking loud and clear on that. Okay, let's get into the Starbucks. That's the big deal right now, okay? You've opened a new Starbucks within the Silverton um, hotel and casino, and you're making a splash with that too. So, what's it like to work with uh, arguably, probably what the number two recognized franchise in the world next to McDonald's is Starbucks, probably? Yeah. Well, so here's uh, I don't, how much time do we have? Just so I can make my story fit. How much time we have? We have as uh, much time as you have, Craig. I'm enjoying uh, this. <laughs> I've got about 15 minutes, so I'll make okay. the Starbucks thing. All right. So very good. In '04, '05, '06, '07. No, I'm sorry, '08 in my last big expansion. So it's yep. all it 10 years ago. I really thought that it would, when we were spending $100 million on this expansion at Silverton, it was our third expansion. I really wanted to validate, maybe it was more personal than business, but I really wanted to validate our existence by getting a Starbucks in the casino. Like we're good enough to have Starbucks. We were good enough for Bass Pro. Yeah, for that's, sure. That's working. Now we're going to be good enough for this. And so we did a licensed store. Pretty simple, 1,400 feet, invested 700 grand to build the store and we opened it. But it's important that I go to this to tell you about the one we just did, which is separate, it's our second one. Mm -hmm. What I did on that is I said, I am not building a Starbucks with a a bunch of pictures on the wall of coffee beans and Arabica coffee and your silly. I want to do this thing really unique and handcrafted. And I was meeting resistance. You know, they said, well, we have this protocol for the line and the back and the menus. And so I said, okay, we'll follow that. What I didn't follow was their direction on how to do artwork and how to set the you know the foreground or the, the living room area. So I really wanted a fountain in there. I wanted more water. And so I built a bank out with a fountain in it that had water coming out. The artwork I had customized, it was sort of it was Vegas centric, but not literal. It was more mixed medium stuff with sculpture, with 
B-E-G-A-S, all custom built in there. And I just didn't tell them, just did it. And so when we're ready to open, they come out and do their final walk and they went, basically, what the hell's going on here, Craig? You're off the rails, man. What is this bankout with a water with a water feature? We don't do water features at Starbucks. What is this artwork? We have this whole box over here of Arabica beans that we wanted you to put up. And I said, then I'm not opening. I'm done. And it didn't go just like this, but I'm paraphrasing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I get said, it. I said, this is what my customers want. It fits the rest of the place. I've got mermaids and airstreams. I mean, come on, I can't just build an airport store. It's ridiculous. They went along with it. It's because cool. the, the person who is our regional um, was um, semi-local and knew of the property and sort of actually said, this is actually very cool. What that meant turned into a bunch of regional mucky mucks from Starbucks came all in and they all went, you know what? This localized art thing, what's wrong with that? This fountain, you know, it's, yeah, what's wrong with that? So they're out there taking pictures. This is 08, so we still weren't quite at the iPhone level, yep. I don't think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Point of that is they embraced it. Now fast forward to 20, let's see, we're in 1918, fast forward to 2017. We're adding some more stuff to our Silverton Village, our 100-acre master plan. Then I get a call from somebody that says, we want to build, they represent Starbucks, we want to build a drive-through, a nice Starbucks drive-through on your campus. I said, no, not on my watch. I said, if there's a Starbucks there, it's going to be mine. They said, well, we don't do drive-throughs for individual owners. And I said, well, but you might consider it here. And they said, well, we have 27,000 of these things, and thank you very much, but we don't do drive-throughs for individual owners. And I said, well, I'd really like to do it. So I went back to the team that sort of helped us in our little licensed store environment over the years, and I found an advocate, found a second advocate, found a third advocate. I don't know for sure. I'd like to think that it got to Howard's desk, and he finally said, let's do it. But they found they advocated for it because they believed in us as an operator. They believed in us as a design that if you're bold enough to do what you did in this little license store, maybe you would do something cool. And I said, I'll build a building that you'll put on the cover of your of your annual report. You won't believe it. I'll go way over the top on it. You're gonna love it. And finally they said yes. And I showed them the image and they couldn't believe it. They said, This cool. is it. So I spent a little over two million dollars building this typical store can be built for a million one or a million two. It is an architectural just masterpiece, I think. I didn't design it, but I'll tell you how, later, if we had a, another call, I'll tell you how it all came about. I had to fire a couple of architects and then ended up sketching something with a friend of mine who's an amazing architect. And literally 48 hours later, he gave me a colored image. It was rendered overnight in Asia by his rendering team in China. And I said, if we build that, we're going to crush it. And we built that. And it was a lot more expensive than we thought and all this. But it's super cool. I wish you had an image of it there. And I'm surprised that no one sent you one. So it's it's a it's a very special store. Um, it just opened in mid-December. Starbucks was great to work with. Um, they embraced our exterior. They embraced our interiors. You know, we have fire tables outside and fire this and that. And we have all kinds of cool stuff. I didn't get my aquarium in there yet. I will get a little shark tank in there at some point. But the store is really good. And they were fun. Exciting. We're working through challenges. Listen, we're the only drive-through private owner, you know, around, and so systems integration are a bit different because we're on our system. Starbucks is used to this loyalty club card. We talked about that earlier. You know, certainly Starbucks is big on loyalty club cards. We're having some operational challenges because we're the only drive-through that's off the grid, so to speak. Right. But right. but you know what? I here's what I love about. Them. I go there on, on a Saturday to just sort of secret shop. I fly in for an event. I go, let's go see what's happening in Starbucks. I go in, 
the girl in the corner with the Starbucks vest on with a laptop typing on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Turns out it's our regional person. There's 150 Starbucks in Las Vegas. I think there's five regionals there that manage, you know, these different things. And we get to talk and we go sit out by the fire table for an hour. And she's the most engaged executive level franchise person I can imagine. It's a licensed store. Mm -hmm. She's fully on it. She was there because she said, this is going to be one of our best store, maybe the best store in the country, or best store in Las Vegas for us. I love it. And I'm here to make sure that it's special. And I go, I'm here just out of the blue. Usually I live in Newport Beach. I would have been at home. Thank you. Thank you for looking out after me. And, and that really turned me because I was sort of frustrated up to that point. I go, I've got her looking after me. This is a good partnership. And I, that's not a paid endorsement, by the way. I'm just no, telling you. No, I get it. They've been a good partner. Well, all of this is certainly a testament, Craig, to your vision and your passion for the business and your marketing flair and all those things come across really strong in this interview. I'm going to ask you two final questions that are kind of split into two two pieces. Um, what advice do you have right now for the everyday independent restaurateur that has one or a few locations to, you know, really crush it in this business? What would you say to those people who are listening? You got to be fanatical about raising revenue and you got to be fanatical about reducing expense. And the tension between those is going to define success or failure. And if you don't love that every single day, I would get out and run as fast as possible. And if you don't love it, but you find it important, you better surround yourself with a team that loves it and you can still do really well. But it's either you or your team. And if you don't have one or the other or both, I'd get out of the food service business, out of the hospitality business and go build nuts and bolts. I mean, it's just not worth it. It's hard enough when you are when you think you're good. It's terrible if you're not fanatical about it. You know, you may have answered the second part of that equation. Would you say that the very same advice would hold true for hotel general general managers who really want to knock it out of the park? It's. I think it's the case whether you are, you know, you're 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 delivering mail for the U.S. Postal Service. Anything. Be an amazing yeah. delivery person. Smile. Put give the dog a little dog cookie when you go by, so everybody's talking about how friendly you are all the time. Whatever you're doing, I don't care what job it is in the casino or, or the hospitality or, or retail or working in accounting downstairs for our real estate company. If you're not going to be great at it, then go find something you really love. Or as my daughter says, find something you love, do it every day, and never work again. Exactly. If you don't love it, just get out of it. It's like we only have so much time here. Just bail out and be done with it. Can people follow you on any social media handles, Craig, or your operation? Uh, do you want to share any URLs or social media platforms or handles? You know, Silver, this is this is the first podcast I've ever done, by the way. My PR, Kamiko, uh, set this up with you. Kamiko yeah. Peterson has heads up all our advertising PR stuff over at Silverton. I said, I've never done a podcast. Why would I want to do one? And she goes, because they're fun to do, number one. It gets a voice out there. And two, then you can develop some followers. And I go, I don't want anyone following me. And so okay, the truth is I don't have that. So this is my, maybe she'll make me sign, get one. So next time I do one of these, I can give you something. Frankly, all I have is, you know, silvertoncasino.com. It's our website, Fort Worth Heritage uh, Development.com and Heritage in Fort Worth. Google up our stockyards project. If you're interested in hospitality, you can follow the Hotel Drover. Jenna Kennard is our celebrity chef down there. It's Jenna Kennard on Twitter. 
Um, I got most of my team is all into that, but you know, I'm just into being fanatical about raising revenue and cutting costs. I'll let them be fanatical about followers and hashtagging. Well, I think you can learn from visiting other properties and other venues that are doing similar things and capture great ideas. So I would encourage the audience to check out uh, the Silverton Hotel and Casino because I certainly learned a lot and I'm really inspired by everything you had to say today, Craig. So thanks so much for being my guest. It's, it was my pleasure to host you on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. No, I loved it, and I will say this, because um, somebody out there, I have no idea who's listening or how many, but there may be somebody out there with some big ideas and some cool things they want to share. So I will give an email address. I'll, I'll let Kamiko, um, our PR director, um, go to Kamiko, K-I-M-I-K-O, dot Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, at SilvertonCasino.com. That's her email address, so if you have big ideas or you want to comment, send her that, and she'll share everything with me. But looking for any bright ideas and, and if, if you think you're an amazing person and you want to work for us let me know excellent thank right, you so thank much you. Craig it was my pleasure and that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast and we'll see you next time whoa guys wasn't that a dynamic episode a whole new philosophy it's not just about running a restaurant or a hospitality business it really is all about taking no prisoners and dominating the competition. I'm all about that. I practiced this approach in my own restaurants for decades. If you're in line with this kind of thinking and want the shortcuts to really big ideas to dominate your own competition, check out all our turnkey resources at restaurantrockstars.com. Now go out there and rock your restaurant, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.